The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Psalm 117, the shortest psalm in the entire collection. Had a conversation last week with a few men about how short this was and how long could you preach on just two verses. Martin Luther wrote 68 pages on those two verses. Spurgeon found five doctrines in those two verses. So I promised to be no longer than four weeks. Just kidding. Psalm 117, if you're there. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. This is the shortest psalm. In fact, it's the shortest chapter in all the Bible. And as you study the Bible, the one thing I become increasingly amazed with is how much the Holy Spirit can pack into small spaces. And this is exactly the same. As I mentioned, Charles Spurgeon found five doctrines, and we'll see some of them this morning. But there is so much in this short psalm that it proves to be one of the most potent and influencing psalms about future things, especially when it comes to you and me. In the first line, it says, praise the Lord, all nations. And I want you to notice this, all nations, because the first striking feature of this psalm is that it calls upon all nations and all peoples to praise God. Nations is the Hebrew translation for Gentiles, and it refers to a wide diversity found in nations and ethnic groups, and it really carries the spirit that we saw in Revelation 7 verse 9 that says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So here is a true statement that all peoples will be saved from all nations around the world. Just think of how many nations are represented just in this room this morning. But we are always in danger of resisting this call to be a missionary people because we we tend to become comfortable and in some cases even look down on others. And this was true of the Jews at the time of the early Christian missions. At the very beginning of the Bible, in fact, we found from what was said of Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there is a missionary emphasis right from Genesis. But yet, if you recall, the Jews forgot about this. In fact, they were willing that the Gentiles to become Jews, if they didn't come in too big a numbers, and if they adhered to the Jewish law, and if they did everything according to their customs. But they were not willing to have the Gentiles remain Gentiles and be called God's people. 
And so this was the battle that Paul had to fight at the first church council when he argued that Gentile believers who accepted Christ were just as much God's people as the Jews. So Christians as well, at times, are guilty of exactly the same thing. They have been so in love with their own way of being Christian that they have rejected suspicious believers who are different. And sometimes they have been so resistant to having anyone else become part of their inner circle that they have neglected their missionary responsibility. In fact, think about this. How often do God's people invite others to church? How often do God's people share the gospel with others? If this is such good news, then why aren't we shouting it from the rooftops? Could it be that we haven't allowed the Holy Spirit to penetrate our wills and so we've never experienced the awesome power of God? When you and I experience the reality of Jesus Christ, we want to share it, don't we? Whenever great things happen in our lives, we can't wait to tell people about it. I mean, you can't believe what happened. I mean, just coming to church this morning and everybody walks in, hey, how you doing? Hey, what'd you think of that game last night? Right? I did. But yet when we have the truth, the reality of the gospel, how often do we come to people and share that tremendous gospel? Here is the place to notice how Paul cites this because Paul in Roman, or in, Paul cites Psalm 117, verse 1, near the end of a very significant portion of Romans, Romans 14, chapter 1, through Romans 15, uh, verse 13. This long section deals with how Christians who consider themselves strong should treat their weaker brothers and how their weaker, weaker brothers should regard the strong. So as usual, what Paul is doing is he's citing all these Old Testament passages to make the Jews realize that, look, your words talk about these Gentiles. And so he quotes Psalm 117, verse 1, in Romans 15, 11. It says, And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. How do we extol the Lord? By praising his virtues. By praising him before others by lifting him up in his awesome presence before the dying world. That's how we extol him. Psalm 117 verse 1 states that the prophecy uh, is that the gospel would be for the Gentiles. So notice what Paul says here in Romans 15, 9 through 12. He says, And in order that the Gentiles, that's you and I, might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's Psalm 118, verse 49. Verse 10. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's Deuteronomy 32, 43. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. That's Psalm 117, verse 1. And then again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. That's Isaiah 11, verse 10. 
So Paul is bringing forth this incredible truth, and he's also sharing it with the Gentiles, that we're to praise the Lord. We're to get this word out. And this is good news for us, that the gospel should be extended to the Gentiles. For in the Old Testament, God focused on his people, and it was for them. And earlier, Romans, or Paul asked the question about, was there an advantage of being a Jew? And he answered it in Romans 3.2 by saying, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So that meant that the Jews had the word of God, the Gentiles did not. Paul interrupts his listing of the Jewish advantages at that point. But then he picks it up again in chapter 9, and he says in verses 4 and 5, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So the Gentiles had none of these advantages. In fact, the Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated, and without hope. Paul says this in Ephesians 2.12, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Imagine. That's not real good news. But if salvation is from the Jews, as Jesus himself told the Samaritan woman in John 4.22, meaning that God had been dealing primarily with the Jewish people since the beginning of Israel, it was a very accurate truth. But fortunately, this former absence of hope is not the final word to the Gentiles. Since Gentile salvation was promised in the Old Testament, and Gentile salvation is the focus of Psalm 117. So when we notice how many verses Paul cites, we realize that he's got a task of convincing these people the reality that the word of God and Christ and salvation is for the Gentiles. And so in hitting it home here, I want you to notice the amazing love of God. Because the second thing we need to notice about 117 is that the reason the Gentiles, along with Jews, are called to praise God is because of God's love. Look at Psalm 117, verse 2. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. In other words... God doesn't stop loving you. His love is steadfast. It endures even through your failures and mine. Now, the Jews liked this because it reminded them of Exodus 34, 6. This is the verse that, that God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments or the, the law for the second time because he had destroyed the first ones, if you recall. Verse 6, Exodus 34, 6, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, 
The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So, so here's the picture. Let me back up a little bit. Moses has been called to Mount Sinai to receive the law. He's going up to get the directions from the hand of God that will govern the nature from that day forward. And so he tells the people in the valley, hang tight, I'll be back. Don't get in trouble. He goes up to the mountain. And while he's up there, the cloud of God's glory descends. And there's a cloud and you hear lightning and thunder. And Moses is up there and he's receiving by the very hand of God, the words that will govern the people. Now, while this is going on, down in the valley, Israel loses their patience. They can see the rumblings up there, but they can't wait. So they take matters into their own hands and they pool all their gold and they melt it down and they form a golden calf and they worship it. And we think, what? You ever taken matters into your own hands? You ever can't wait for God to do something? You've been praying, nothing's happening. Where are you, God? And so you take matters into your own hands. You see, no patience means no faith. So Moses comes down the mountain. He's glowing from being in the presence of God. He's holding in his arms the very handwritten notes from God the Father. And he sees what's going on. And he gets so angry that he takes him and he throws him in the ground and shatters him in the stone. The very words of God. He throws them down. And he's angry at the people. So we have a people who take matters into their own hands. We have a leader who gets angry. Now, I really love Exodus 34 verse 1. And let me read it to you with my own personal inflection, which is not inspired. Psalm 34, 1. The Lord said, and this is when he's brought him back up and he's, and he's given him the law again. The Lord said, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke. Ouch. Here's the point, folks. God is long-suffering and his love endures forever. And in spite of the people and in spite of Moses, he gives it to them again. You and I have got to stop thinking that once we hit the wall, we're done. Because God never gives up on us. He never will give up on us. When he has saved you and called you to himself and you belong to him, he will get you through. But you have to rely on him and surrender to him. That's why I love all these great Old Testament experiences. Let someone else go through it. I'll learn from that so I don't have to make the same mistake. Hopefully. But this is amazing love. This amazing love is found actually mostly in the end of the Psalms because, probably because it was uppermost in the minds of the chastised remnant 
as they had returned from their 70-year-long Babylonian captivity. So they've been through it again. They've paid the price for unfaithfulness. They would have focused their thoughts on the greatness of God's love, that God had preserved them as a nation in spite of their great sin. So if the Jews, if the Jews who returned from Babylon were aware of the greatness of God's love, how much more should we? You see, they, as of yet, didn't know Jesus. They were believing of a future Messiah that was yet to come. But you and I are on the other side. We know the story. We have seen him. We know what he did. We personally, because of what he has done, come to him, believe on him, trust him. He fills us with his spirit, yet we struggle sometimes to obey. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of what our big problem really is. I think we refuse to give up and let him have his way. And here's a classic example. Matthew 16, 24 says, Jesus says himself, if anyone would come after me. If anyone here in this room would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That one word, deny, is what we don't want. We want Christ's salvation. We want Christ to help us in time of need. We, in fact, we want him to help us avoid all that stuff. But deny myself? Put myself back here? Allow God to take over and lead me? Really? Deny? And then on top of that, take up my cross? That's staggering for us to grasp. That's staggering to let it soak into us. Matthew 10, verse 30 says, And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This isn't me talking. This is Christ. We find ourselves crushed under the weight of life. And our whole focus is getting through the trial till today to get to tomorrow. And like the Israelites, when we lose our way, we simply make up our own idea and try to get through it the best we can. But Jesus is very specific. You see, Jesus didn't mess around when he was here on earth. He told it exactly as it is. This idea of Christianity being a name it and claim it religion is not in the Bible. Jesus made it very clear, unless you deny me and take up my cross, you cannot be my disciple. Tough words. That's why he said in talking to, um, talking to uh, the, the rich young ruler, look, go sell everything you have. Go, go, go sell it. Get rid of it. You want to follow me? Take all your riches and get rid of it and then come follow me. 
And he walked. He walked. I'm reminded of the parable where the man is in the field and he finds a treasure and its worth is staggering. It's more than he could ever expect. And he's got to buy that field. So he goes and he sells everything he has. Everything he has. And his friends are like, are you crazy? He gets rid of all of it. Why are you getting rid of all of this? Because I have found something that's value. So outweighs what I have. I want rid of it. And that's what Jesus is saying to you and I. If you will deny yourself and the things you think are so important, I will fill you with untold riches that are eternal. If you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Kind of makes you think of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's gift to us of Jesus is alone the full measure in the magnitude of his love. God so loved that he gave his son. And yet we can't part with anything. But yet we call ourselves his disciples. Notice the prevailing power of God's love. When you take the great out of verse 2, In our normal English sense, in our language, it's large, remarkable, distinguished, superior, and all of that is accurate. But in the Hebrew, the word has the sense of someone having prevailed over something else because of its superior power. For example, in Exodus 17.11, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. We get the same sense in Genesis 17 and talking about the floodwaters where it said the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. Psalm 65, 3, when my iniquities prevailed against me, you atoned for our transgressions. The point is that when the word is used of the love of God for his people, it also has the thought of God prevailing over my obstacles and enemies. So there is nothing in your life God will not prevail over. Nothing. Absolutely nothing that he won't prevail over. Martin Luther as we know, had enemies chiefly amongst the churchmen of his day. But when Martin Luther was writing about Psalm 117, and I'm not going to read the 68 pages, of course, but listen to this one section. He said, quote, Although sin makes itself felt, death bears its teeth, and the devil frightens us, still there is far more grace to prevail over all sin, far more life to prevail over death, and far more God to prevail over all devils. In this kingdom of sin, death and the devil are nothing more than the black clouds of the material heaven. 
For in time, they may well conceal heaven, but they cannot prevail. They must stay beneath the heavens and suffer it to remain, prevail, and rule over them. And at the last, they must pass away. Therefore, although sin bites us, death frightens us, the devil throws his weight around with temptations, there are still, they are still only clouds. The heaven of grace prevails and rules, and in the end, they must remain below and surrender. End of quote. That's exactly what Paul was saying in Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can't lose. So give it up to him. Don't hang on to it. Surrender everything to his care and let his love prevail in your situation. Also notice the power of God's truth. Now, the word rendered faithfulness in verse 2 is the Hebrew word amen. And it can be translated truth, steadfastness, or reliable. In the New Testament, the words of, in the words of Jesus, it's often rendered truly, truly. Amen is found in nearly every language of the world. But it originates from the Hebrew verb meaning to support with the arm, or get this, to carry. So it literally means that which is supported or that which is held up. Are you tracking with that? Psalm 28, 9. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Isaiah 40, 11, he will tend his flock like his shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom. In other words, when you're at your greatest struggle, he'll carry you if you surrender. Now, all of you are, I'm sure, very familiar with a poem about footprints. In fact, I'll bet most of you have it on a plaque hanging on your wall somewhere in your house. But it's really fitting. Listen to this. One night I dreamed a dream, and as I was walking along the beach with my Lord, across the dark sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one to my Lord. After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand, and I noticed that at many times along the path of my life, especially at the very lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprints. This really troubled me, so I asked the Lord about it. I said, Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the time, all the way. But I noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I didn't understand why. When I needed you most, you'd leave me. He whispered, my precious child, I love you. 
I would never leave you, never. During your trials and testings, when you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Do you believe that this morning? Is that the truth of your heart? Over the years, this old Hebrew word took on two very important uses. And the two uses became the dominant. First, the word was used of God as one of his attributes, attributes which is what we have here in Psalm 117. This usage was perfectly natural, for if the word meant enduring and unshakable and reliable, then it is rightly applied to God, who alone is utterly unshakable. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God will never pass away, nor will his words. Therefore, we find God spoken of as the Amen, or the God of truth. It is this sense that Isaiah speaks of God in Isaiah 65, 16. So that he who blessed himself in the Lord shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the Lord shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Being faithful is one of God's characteristics. And it is his faithfulness that is mentioned in our Psalm 117 this morning. You and I never, never, never need to worry. His faithfulness is sure. His love is sure. You are eternally secure in him. So how do you react to your current life? The second use of amen is one that we're very familiar with. We use it to express agreement with what God says. God says something, we say amen. But here's what we're really saying. Don't miss this. We are setting our seal to the fact that God is faithful and will never steer us wrong. So when God says, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, can you say amen? That is the reality of the gospel and folks, if there's any area in today's society where we're lacking, it's right there. We want to talk about Christianity. We want to talk about how bad our world is. We want to talk about what we need to solve the problems. But it all comes down to the heart of every individual Christian. Am I willing to deny myself and follow his call? Could it be that God is allowing such deep problems in your life so he can reveal the enormity of his grace? Look at the last line of verse 2. 
it says, praise the Lord. If I could sit here this morning and tell you that if you'll deny yourself, that if you will take Psalm 17 and glue it into your heart and praise God, that he will get you through your situation. Would you believe me? Because that's what he's saying. Ah, Craig, but you don't know my situation. You don't know what I'm going through. Man, I can't see up. I can't see down. I can't see left. I can't see right. I can't see anything. Good. You don't want to see it. Let him see it for you. Because he's the only one that guides your path. You know what happens when you and I see things? That's the way we go. And how's that working for you? His love is overpowering. But you've got to submit to it. And if you're afraid to do that, I understand. But on the authority of this word, I can tell you beyond the shadow of a doubt that when you do, he will see you through. As we come to this table this morning, we realize what he really did to secure all this. You and I could have been born 3,000 years ago. We could have been born 2,000 years ago. But we were born now after all this was done. And he gave us his word to explain it all to us. And if you've come to Christ and accepted him as your savior, you've come to him and believed on him. He's given you the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth. So as you come to the table this morning, you realize the bread representing the broken body and the cup representing that shed blood that secured your eternity. Has that reality seized your heart on a day-to-day basis? Are you denying yourself because of this and taking up your cross because of him and walking where he leads you? As we prepare and as the men come, examine your heart this morning. Pay very close attention to the Spirit's teaching and leading you this morning and ask him to open your heart to what needs to be done in your heart and life. Father, as we come to prayer now, we're reminded so much of your unfailing love. We're reminded as Psalm 117 tells us that because of your great love, not only for Israel, but for all of us, that you made a way for the Gentiles. You made a way for us to trust you. You made a way for us to come to you, to be loved, and to experience that amazing grace. As we take a few minutes now, Lord, just to reflect personally, please speak to our hearts and remove all the clutter. And may we listen 